Hello and welcome to the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast with me, Whitney Way. I'm the editor-in-chief of Electronic Beats, and in this podcast, we meet with the musicians, creatives, and characters driving forward culture today. Join me in discovering how our guests create bold visions and brighter futures. In today's podcast, we are joined by Georgian producer Mikhailo Tudua and journalist and former deputy editor of Electronic Beats, Chloe Lula. In 2018, Chloe wrote the article Behind Bars, now part of the best of collection of essays within the 20-year Electronic Beats book, detailing the story of Mikhailo's unexpected incarceration in the Tbilisi Ministry of Corrections. After being randomly stopped on the street and drug tested in 2013, Mikhailo was found with trace amounts of MDMA in his bloodstream and sentenced to nine years in prison without access to legal or financial assistance during this process. In Georgia, drug possession for personal use can be subject to more punitive punishment, a sentence of eight to 20 years in prison, than rape, murder, or terrorism. After six years behind bars, Mikhailo was released under house arrest, which he served for two years. For his final year, he was amnestied due to the article's publication. It is a fascinating story and a testament to how journalism remains an important government watchdog, a way to check abuses of power, and even enact societal change. Let's dive in. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Um, let's get started and get into the conversation. So, Chloe, you have been reporting from Tbilisi and recently published an article on its LGBTQ struggles for Politico, funded by the Pulitzer Center. Could you explain for um, some of the larger sociopolitical context in the capital for listeners um, that has stemmed from, you know, around 2013 to present day? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I have spent quite a bit of time there reporting over the last few years. Um, I'm generally really interested in the social and cultural landscape in Eastern Europe and how the fall of the Soviet Union gave rise to these deep, um, like this deep religiosity and conservatism in a lot of post-Soviet states simultaneously. So one thing that I've kind of discovered through my research is that this is mostly because the USSR had no religion. So when it fell, we saw this huge uprising in nationalism and religious institutions as a way to unite territories that had previously been subsumed within the USSR. So this is what happened in Georgia, and it's why we see a lot of ongoing issues with gender justice and LGBTQ rights and like progressive politics in general that are coming to a head in this part of the world. Um, so the piece I wrote for Politico, was, uh, which was published a couple of weeks ago, was about transgender rights in Georgia, um, since a lot of trans women specifically are pushed into illegal sex work um, because of the discrimination they face in finding above board work. And another one of the tensions that I saw when I was in Tbilisi, um, you know, for this story in Politico, as well as for the behind bars story, is this contradiction between the two icons of Georgian ideology, um, like the Orthodox church and the state. Um, so on one hand, you have this really strong national identity that's tied to traditionalism. Um, but on the other hand, you have this government, um, which is led by the Georgian dream party. That's really pushed for neoliberal economic policies in order to better align with liberal democracy in the UN and NATO. Um, so it's caused this like huge rise in poverty and inequality. 
And so, you know, when I when we first reported this story in 2017, um, that's kind of when the pushback against this social and political conservatism was really coming to a head, I saw. Um, and it was also right after Bassiani had opened its doors, which was, you know, uncoincidentally, like around the same time. Um, and this organization, White Noise, had started, which is... Um, the nonprofit that pushed for drug decriminalization. For more context, White Noise, the group Chloe touches upon, is a Georgian movement closely affiliated with Bassiani, made up of horizontally organized activists fighting for humane drug reform. Activated officially in December of 2015, but with roots back to 2013, this campaign pushes against the country's constitutional laws that classify all drug users as criminals to be severely punished with six to eight year prison sentences or charge fines equivalent of 12 to 15,000 euros. So, I mean, there's there's definitely been a lot of progress since then, but those are kind of the like the main issues that I have seen, as well as I just want to note, I mean, there's like been this really loud and militant uprising in right wing groups like the Georgian March, um, which is perpetuating a lot of hateful and oppressive stereotypes. And it doesn't really seem like there's been any effort from the government to quell these groups. Um, so this is kind of like the the political and social backdrop that uh, I was looking at. Mm-hmm. And how does that kind of dovetail into what's going on? Like you said, you mentioned Bastiani opening. And then obviously after shortly after your article was published behind bars, uh, there was a raid protest that was in front of City Hall because there were raids going on at Bastiani. So how does the cultural centers of Tbilisi and a lot of the nightlife and club culture, how does it interact with the sociopolitical changes that you were just describing? In preparation for this podcast, I double-checked when the Bastiani raids happened, and it was literally the day after our article was published. And I actually didn't remember that it had happened so immediately afterwards. Um, but I mean, just, you know, for those who maybe aren't familiar with what happened, um, in, in 2018 on, um, I think it was May, May 12th, 2018, there was, um, an armed raid in Bassiani. So police officers came in to Bassiani and to Cafe Gallery, which is another club, um, enforced their closure and they were citing drug related issues like overdoses and deaths, which these clubs refuted. And so the club's response was to stage these rave protests outside of the parliament building. Um, And the club owners and white noise organizers said that the police officers had were planting drugs on people and arresting them and using like disproportionate amounts of force. And so, I mean, one of the upshots of these protests was that um, they started this rallying cry, we dance together, we fight together, which I think a lot of people know now is like this kind of unifying call to stand up to conservatism and like to champion, you know, queer rights and progressive politics more generally. And so the immediate outcome of this was that uh, Georgia was able to decriminalize uh, cannabis possession um, in July. So that was like a really big and unforeseen victory. But I think like on another level, I think another important outcome was that it showed how nightlife can act as an incubator and as a catalyst for progressive politics. Like when I I went to Warsaw earlier this year to cover the pro-choice protests and the organizers cited these demonstrations in front of the Georgian parliament as like their inspiration so I think the rave protests after the Bassiani raid kind of shifted the landscape to a degree where younger people began to see the possibilities of 
creating institutions like really advocate for real change and like provide safety for the socioeconomically marginalized. Um, and also like to help provide environments where like, uh, you know, people with like liberal backgrounds could mix with older conservatives and like kind of establish an ideological meeting ground. Um, and I think that like, that's really what Bassiani has come to stand for um, since it opened. Mm, that's really interesting. And that's a really great way to put it. Um, I think that it's a good time to kind of, now that we have like the so larger sociopolitical grounding of all these events that we're talking about, I, maybe we could switch to Mikhailo uh, and you personally describe what it was like in Tbilisi, what it was like living there right before you were arrested. What would the general, what is the general climate? Mikhailo speaks to us from his home studio in Tbilisi. On camera, he wears a loose white tee with a red print across the right-hand pocket with three long, thin silver chains. His dark beard accentuates his concave cheekbones, and just below his left eye is a tiny face tattoo. Behind him is a panorama of two large computer monitors, propped-up synthesizers, audio compressors, and MIDI keyboards. During the six years that I was behind bars, it's actually really blurry and hard to tell right now the change and difference between that time and right now because everything's so stopped because of the pandemic. And uh, it's actually kind of hard to tell for me if I'm still in this house arrest or am I free to go everywhere because basically all the things around us in the whole entire world is basically like stopped and it's it's very hard to actually see the difference between those times right now because um in this scene in cultures like things are very very vibrant in general but right now considering everything is stopped it's it's actually hard to see the difference and hard to see the change right but could we go back to what it was like around you know 2013 when life was still going on as normal uh, and you were walking around and you were participating in nightlife and you were promoting what certain uh, conflicts that maybe the nightlife culture and electronic music had with the government and uh, conservatism at that time? Like what were there tensions that you would sense when you were trying to throw a party? Um, yeah. What kind of maybe conflicts that you had with the government general I guess, like cultural atmosphere at 20, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013. This angle that we can look at uh, this whole uh, situation is that um, clubs and music most like skyrocketing in a way in the last six years. Um, and there was a huge leap for Georgia in the particular aspect. However, unfortunately, things outside of this thing, like people's social status, like poverty, people's um, income situation, and economics, and human rights and all the other things are actually still really far away from being well-developed. However, the thing that we learned recently was that we have the power we have this weapon called techno that we can actually use to resist and to to fight for either rights and various things. That was an important lesson for our community. In what ways do you say that techno is this weapon? Is it because you were able to finally gather and see the kind of massive of people that shared your same ideals? Or in what ways were you able to mobilize uh, your politics through a medium like music? Mm -hmm. 
the importance of having these kind of places, the techno venues in this case, like like Bastiani, for instance, is this, in a way, like an island of this whole country where people can meet and they have mutual interests, they have common sense of things that they agree on, they share, and they exchange their own experiences. And more importantly, it's also about dancing and reason of dancing um, and awareness of it all actually and that awareness has been raised from that angle in this case and um, once again these spaces the actual places the physical spaces and also beyond the physical space because it's people gathering and sharing and creating the community in this sense is very important so I guess for listeners, this is a good time to kind of envision this very small group, this underground scene, um, finding themselves and finding this core of solidarity amidst all of these larger conservative struggles um, with the government. And Chloe, uh, could you give us um, the backstory of how this story came about? How did you originally hear of Mikhailo's story and um, eventually go on to report on it? Yeah. So um, it really happened kind of coincidentally. Uh, in 2017, I was interviewing uh, Arakli Kazaria, who's a Berlin-based um, producer and promoter and designer and like polymath generally. And uh, <laughs> um, I was writing about this Georgian ambient music compilation that he had put together. And at that point, I really didn't know anything about Georgia. Um, and Arakli's from Tbilisi. And while we were talking, um, he kind of offhandedly mentioned some of the political unrest that was happening in Georgia and um, like how it had, I think it was like the second highest incarceration rate in all EU affiliated countries. And I say affiliated because it's not actually part of the EU, but it wants to be. Um, And he mentioned that like some of his friends were getting sentenced to like between 10 and 20 years in prison. Um, And Part of this was because, you know, in 2017, at least, the government wasn't um, like there was no difference in the way that illicit substances were being classified. So if you had a small amount of weed on you for personal use, um, you were punished in the same way as if, you know, you had a huge amount of like cocaine or amphetamine. Um, So um, Arakli kind of he was telling me about this and um, how the government was really targeting people from lower socioeconomic classes to like take advantage of the fact that they had no real like legal or financial recourse. And um, he was like, I actually know someone personally who was arrested like in these very circumstances and he's a DJ and he he was sentenced to 10 years and he also like has a studio in his like in jail and um, he was like, his name's Mikhailo, and he's like sending tracks out on a USB that he's mm-hmm. giving to his wife. And I was just like, okay, this is definitely a story. <laughs> um, so I really wanted Arakli to organize it. So we stayed in touch. And um, Arakli was like, actually, I'm playing at Bassiani in a couple of months. Like, just come with me. So um, I ended up going with him, and Arakli helped organize the meeting with Mikhailo, um, and he helped me arrange and conduct interviews around the city. Um, and he also booked me to play a show when I was there. Um, so, I mean, for a while, Mikhailo and I could not keep in contact because he was still in jail, but then he was moved to house arrest like a year ago. And so we actually reestablished contact on Facebook, and we hung out 
out when I was in Tbilisi in October reporting on the Politico story. Um, so yeah, it's been kind of a crazy turn of events <laughs> since then. Wow. Yeah, no, that is, that is a very crazy turn of events. And I'm glad that we're all gathered on this podcast now. It continues yeah. and the yeah. world will hear. Uh, Mikhailo, if you could tell me a little bit about what happened to you when you were detained, if you could tell me the backstory in general. Yeah, the main and very clear reason of it all is that like the immensely inhuman drug policy in the war on drugs in Georgia, where people are being arrested for consuming little amounts of substances, uh, and they were treated like murderers, for instance, and like super uh, high-profile criminals, you know. And that's how clear it is. That's basically <laughs> the main reason. It's just. Uh, yeah, unbelievable how the state treats people and how this border between like consumers who with small amount and like this really serious criminals is very blurred out. In the story that Chloe wrote, uh, she wrote that you were randomly searched on the street or you were randomly selected and then searched. And then once they found trace levels of MDMA, um, then you were incarcerated at the Tbilisi Ministry of Corrections. Do you remember what was going through your mind during that time, during that whole process, from the point when you were randomly stopped on the street to when you were kind of going through this whole process? Did you have some level of shock or what kind of emotions were you funneling through? When I realized that Okay, I have to spend nine years here in prison. Also, I realized at the same time that, okay, this is going to happen, but I should not waste these nine years of being absent in this world, you know? So I knew that I had to make music there. I was actually lucky that I knew what I wanted to do because sometimes people have this problem of like being lost. And I actually got lucky in the sense that uh, I knew where I was going in this and I didn't waste these nine years and I, I just couldn't allow myself to waste these nine years there. Once again, I was lucky that I knew where I was going, what was I doing. However, the, the interesting fact is that this whole fact that I was making music in prison actually became sort of like a promotional thing for the prison and people who worked there as if they were doing something great of helping me making music there. However, it's actually a little bit ironical that in the first place it was a terrible thing to people in the prison for these kind of charges. And then they basically were kind of bragging about this thing that, oh, you know, like this person is making music here, so we're supporting him. So they're kind of like it was some like a commercial advertising this as if they were actually doing something very valuable or good and there was basically like promoting it in this, in this sense, you know? And it's, and it's very ironic to have this cultural promotion even though the person who was doing a lot of this, these cultural activities outside of prison would have more impact on society and be able to express um, themselves more freely. How did you first set up your studio and then begin learning how to produce? Was it difficult to convince the staff uh, to give you the equipment to do that? Hold on. 
It was uh, not easy, obviously. Almost on every little tiny thing, the piece of gear, for instance, I had to make this official letter, I had to write to the ministry and contact them officially, and they would make it super complicated for me and everything. Also, I was not really popular among them because I also was writing a lot of letters and sending to a lot of demonstrations when they would read it there. And uh, obviously, people from the ministry and this uh, system, they didn't like that, so they would actually try to make every little thing extra complicated for me to be restricted. I was very restricted in so many things, well, obviously. And this was the climate right there. However, eventually it worked out. And I think it's because of several things. First of all, it's, it's like my stamina that I had to, I had to do it. I was super motivated about this. Also, like loving of music was immense and super strong. And that was also keeping me going. However, I should also mention that people supported me, like the electronic bits, even like uh, this press or uh, any kind of support. A lot of people that are involved in this were also a big part. Mikhaila faced enormous bureaucratic pushback in gathering the necessary music equipment. In her article, Chloe describes the environs where his productions came together. His in-jail music studio lies behind the Tbilisi Ministry of Corrections, high barbed wire-trimmed white walls, cadre of machine gun-carrying guards, and a nearly two-hour-long security control. The makeshift 10-square-meter workshop is situated on the third floor of a building that could pass as an elementary school. Its long, empty hallways are filled with window doors that look into rows of desks, inmate-crafted pottery projects, and white fluorescent-lit classrooms. Todoist space contains only a table littered with an old desktop PC, various small synthesizers, and a collection of traditional Georgian folk instruments that he uses to sample and sometimes to play. And what was your gear set up? Because I'm imagining it took so long to get all the individual parts. And how did you go about mastering each gear? While being in prison, I obviously didn't have connection to the internet. And uh, it would be super hard for me to learn things and have my skills. Like people have this privilege of browsing with the tutorials and YouTube and educational things. And my wife was actually all these things to me. She would just bring in the files with tutorials in prison for me on USB. And I would also like send out the files and music via her her and the big part of me learning of it was experiments how i would just explore the devices like press a button somewhere what does this do what did that do however when it comes to actual gear i used uh, several Vista plugins um several synthesizers like jomax electron and cord and this was my setup basically in prison, Mikhailo honed his skills by scoring prison-produced plays, such as Twelve Angry Men, and collaborating with other inmates on reinterpreting traditional Georgian folk music. His own music, however, held a cold, disquieting atmosphere, as heard on the final track he made behind bars, titled Bingo. The track's repetitive stamps ground the escalating, nervous synth lines. In 2018, you told Chloe, sometimes I try to make music that sounds happier or more melodic, but here it's impossible. When you're Cajun, everything that comes out of you sounds dark. 
Could you describe how over time your sound has changed from moving behind bars to house arrest and potentially now that you are a free man? To be honest, that's true. And uh, I think that since then, my sound has opened a little bit. Uh, I still make dark music, however. Um, but I think it has like evolved into more like brighter emotions in music anyway. But yeah, it doesn't mean that I'm not still making dark music. There was this amnesty, which was considering in general on this uh, paragraph, which was, I was charged with, that the quarter of the charge would be dropped. However, I actually stared way more than that. So I'm completely free now, not even on parole, not even on house arrest. So I'm just completely free, man. Uh, the irony in this is that I actually don't feel any difference because it's exactly the same as it was before because where I cannot go outside is the curfew in Georgia right now. And the funny thing is that when this ends, we all are going to be free together. It's going to be like, she's not in this alone, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Doesn't have, nothing has changed. True. That is very true. Uh, going back to the kind of line of questions that we were going down, can you talk about, is there a recent production that you made and where did you get inspiration for that recent track or recent production? Something that you made very recently. I'm still working. I have a big amount of material already gathered. It's going to be actually several albums. It's going to be very diverse at the same time. It's inspired my imagination. It's more about how I actually imagine this material before I produce it and how I imagine it coming out, how I imagine it to be when it's, it's a ready product. And uh, it's all entirely based on that. After his release, he produced Barusi, which contains some of the sonic mayhem of the outside world. Incessant cell phone rings and trickling beeps skitter over a revving techno beat. Well, we'll have to look out for it once the once the release date. <laughs> there's no release date uh, for now, but this is also like this irony that my brass that was removed, this house red bracelet that I was wearing all this time was removed. But ironically, I actually had some injury on my other leg, and now right now on my crushes. So it's <laughs> it's it's ironical in the sense that uh, I'm going through this right now. Whenever I find time, like I work on this, but I know it's going to be very soon. How did the Electronic Beats article help shorten your jail time? Uh, if I follow my experience, this kind of things, like press in this case, like the Electronic Beats, has hugely affected even people who work for the state, uh, even the government, because they actually pay attention to these kind of things. And the Electronic Bits helped me and helped me to deliver the message to the whole world. So the entire world found out about my story. And uh, actually, some people liked it, some didn't. The people who didn't like it, were they people that worked in the government or... Who are the people that were opposing your story? Because I'm curious about that. Yeah, not the government. Actually, it becomes slightly ridiculous to a lot of people who learn about this story. Is that, okay, this is a guy who makes music in prison, in jail. But then they find out the first place why this person is in the jail. And then the whole story becomes very sad. So there's nothing to be happy about, you know? So these are the people who are, it's not that they have bad intentions towards me or the situation. It's just, uh, it was a happy moment that I got this uh, 
piece made about me on electronic beats. However, the bigger story, the bigger picture is that this entire thing is very sad. And it's, there's nothing that much to like about it, actually, because it's entirely a really sad story. Chloe, do you remember what the impact of the article was when it it was finally published and promoted across social media? What was the immediate reception? So what I remember is that there were about like, it was between like 90 and 100,000 people who read the article the day it was published. And I don't have access to the Google Analytics now, but I think at this point, it's been at least 800,000 people who have read it. So I think we were all a little bit surprised. I mean, I, I was kind of anticipating that it would get traffic um, because it is a little bit of a sensational piece, you know, with like the headline and the lead photo and like not very many people get access to um, to people who are in jail. Um, but I mean, I wasn't at all expecting the kind of like real life impact that it would have. And um, that was really gratifying to see. Um, I had no idea that it was going to serve as a piece of testimony for Mikhailo to get out of jail early. Um, so I was very like shocked and humbled by that. And um, the piece actually did end up winning two awards afterwards. So I was also um, not expecting that, but um, very grateful for it. Yeah, no, that's great to hear how journalism not only does many wonders like personally and professionally, but it is a way to keep governments in check and for people to really open their eyes to a lot of issues that are going on um, that they might not even realize in countries over. So Mikhailo, you you mentioned this briefly when we were kind of talking about getting the details of your release, but you were put on house arrest two years ago and then fully released in recent weeks. How did that process become uh, accelerated? Was house arrest something that was planned or were you going to be in jail for the entire nine years? Um, like, How did the sentence change over time? And was that because of the Electronic Beats article? Actually, it wasn't something peculiar or unusual because the fact that I was released with a house arrest is actually, it happens. Uh, it's just like there's a process, you write a letter and then there's a commission that they gather and they decide what to do when you only have like a quarter of your um, sentence left. And uh, it happens to everybody if you don't break any rules in prison, if you basically behave and you don't have any record in there of like having some trouble or having any kind of like bad behavior record on your on yourself, this is typical and it happens if you're just uh, basically a good, a good citizen inside. And yeah, not anything very unusual. So this is how it happens in most cases. Did you read the article after it was published? And what did you personally think about it, reading your story? It's very important to actually underline this thing that uh, something that the way people feel things outside jail is certain thing, a certain way they do. But inside the prison, when you're there, when you're making something, when you're doing there, doesn't matter if you're making music or not, you feel things differently. So that emotion that I had, this feeling that I read, it was I was super grateful. But it was kind of different from all this gratitude that people have outside because once again, you feel things differently in there. And how are you feeling now? I mean, now that you just, we just kind of talked about how you feel things differently inside jail versus how you feel things when you're finally a free man. How do you feel right now in general? 
Exactly. The difference uh, between then and now, once again, as I said, is very hard to distinguish right now. Obviously, it's it, it's hard to compare right now because, as I said, not many things changed. Because, of course, it's great to be with my family and to have this kind of freedom. I also have the status that you're not in prison anymore. But um, it's really hard to tell, to be honest. It's uh, at first I was uh, the feelings that I had in prison was that I was feeling that it was super unfair that uh, I would see other people who also committed even more serious crimes than I did they were getting released early or things like that would be just kind of exceptions um, but the end of the day yeah that's the thing it's hard for me to tell right now because it's not that I feel immensely different from how I was feeling in there when I was even house arrest for instance you know all these years when I was in prison I had these expectations of like when I would come out I would be free again I would be making music I would attend and play festivals and events however now here we are and none of that is actually happening and it's very hard for me to, to fathom and uh, recently there was this gathering of artists um, in Georgia where they were trying to figure out what to do because recently the situation in Georgia is that they reopened some venues and some restaurants and some bars. However, the club venues are still remaining closed. And that's the attitude towards the DJs and people who make electronic music is that they're not really considered to be real artists uh, as opposed to like composers or other kind of musicians. And it's a very sad and very uh, devastating situation about this in Georgia right now. Right. It is a very odd time to be a free man, especially when, you know, obviously everyone else is, we're all contained within our homes and our own lockdown variants of house arrest, if you will. But what do you envision or what do you hope for when we are all free together? Yeah, exactly. Then when we are all free, then I'm going to feel free myself. It's gonna be this united thing that we were all gonna enjoy freedom together. So I'm gonna be part of it, and then that's exactly when I'm gonna be uh, feeling. And another question is: obviously, things are very different in the government in 2013. There's a lot of things that have changed in terms of policy up until now. But how will Tagno continue to be a political weapon in Georgia? Okay, now is a very interesting time about this because soon we're going to learn what kind of shape it's going to have, this techno as we know it as this weapon. And the very good example of this is this artist who united together and they had this gathering and this gives some evidence of techno and not just techno generally. Uh, this scene is actually is becoming something bigger and um, this is the evidence of having this power and this weapon. The gathering of artists Mikhailo is referring to consists of active individuals at the club scene. He told me over email that since the government has condemned artists and nightclubs to death during the pandemic, these artists are aligning to reverse that sentence. How it will be expressed, he says, is still in working progress. Through this power, how do you hope to see the region continue to change? We have we also have to use this power to push the state and government to acknowledge that this scene is a part of high culture and this is part of our human development as it is in, in other cases. So that's what we're going to have to be aiming right now. And um, this is where the power is 
And that's how we have to show them. Dancing, for instance, dance is a big part of it. And with music, that we have to deliver this message to them. You know, we matter way more than you think we do. Yeah, that's very well put. Last year, Chloe received her MA at, at Columbia Journalism School and credits the behind bars story with changing her direction on reporting. Chloe, could you explain how your relationship with journalism changed after this article was published? Yeah. I mean, up until I wrote this story, um, you know, I'd written about music and culture that was tangentially related to politics. Um, but this article was really my first experience writing about something that had like a pretty profound sociopolitical resonance, especially in the realm of human rights and policy, because the dance music scene in Tbilisi is so deeply implicated with politics. And it was also the first time I think I really saw and interacted with a group of people making this kind of like radical bottom-up political and cultural reform. And I could feel how urgent it was when I was talking to them. And it was, I don't know, it was just like a very empowering feeling to think that like in some small way I was helping amplify their voices or like providing a platform for positive change. And um, it really opened my eyes to the power that journalism can have. And like Mikhailo said, like, I think, you know, my story helped him, but obviously there are, you know, there are larger problems. Um, but I did see like specific ways that an article can have a tangible effect. It really changed my perspective on writing. And so I applied for grad school in the months following the publication of that article. And my aim was really specifically to broaden my purview to focus more on writing about human rights issues specifically. So I've since been covering more human rights um, topics, like through the lens of music and the arts, but like more specifically gender justice and LGBTQ rights um, and intersectional feminism. Those are like things that have really taken center stage for me on the heels of completing this piece. And I think just, I don't know, being able to elevate narratives like this has been really gratifying. And it's, it's the reason why I find meaning in my work. These are all my questions for today. Thank you, both of you. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Mikhailo, for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, friends. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the Electronic Beats podcast. Mikhailo's story is representative of so many drastic sociopolitical shifts happening around the world that are grounded in electronic music and cultural journalism. If you like this podcast, we would love for you to rate us on Spotify or tag us on Instagram at Electronic Beats. Catch you next time.